that you know that. Um, and it's been a long time coming. So I've been trying to get on this season one, preseason, <laughs> in-season tournament. I don't know how to get on this show. look we film we film in season but i mean look i i'm excited to have you on i had to had to like blink twice because i'm like okay is this general benjamin o davis jr but you know um it's nice to have you on i mean the family resemblance resemblance is just um it's there for sure so we're excited to get into it yeah, we're the, 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 Tus- the Tuskegee Airmen call me Big Ben Davis because he was like really skinny and I'm not. And they're always like, you just like a Big Ben Davis. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. Well, listen, well, let's go ahead and dive on in and welcome one and all to another episode of A Dose of Black Joy and Caffeine. Now, this is season eight, and I could not be any more excited to be partnering with Ad Color this season. So, uh, this season is a makeup of 28 individuals, whether it's the Ad Color Advisory Board, board members, futures, leaders that are a part of the Ad Color community, and you're able to see the dynamic things that they're doing. And talking about our community, I'm super excited to also have Makisha Noel, who is our co host this season. How's it going, Makisha? Oh. I am doing excellent. I'm so excited to be here. This is going to be an amazing season with dope people like Doug Melville and everyone else that's on the docket. So I do. I'm so excited that you're having me this season. Absolutely. Listen, I wouldn't have it any other way. And for the longest, everyone thinks that you're my sister. So I'm like, hey, it works out. <laughs> you chocolate on there, right? <laughs> you already know. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's dive into our guest today. Our guest today is one of the most innovative and sought out voices in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm going to go a step further when it comes to strategy, marketing, as well as entertainment. Um, and maybe if we're uh, you know, lucky enough, they'll share a little bit about their background with some of the celebrities that they've even worked with. But today on the show, we have author Doug Melville. Doug, how's it going? All right, we did it. We made it to the author title. You go all the <laughs> way through your career just to make it to 70,000 words in order. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was actually going to start off there and just ask you, how does it feel to have that title? It's, um, you know, it's funny when, um, when the book comes out and people address you as an author, you know, when the pre-sales happen. So when you sign with a top five publisher, you know, because... Uh, anyone can write a book, but if you sign with a top five publisher, you know, they kind of put you in the ecosystem. So mm-hmm. when they start pre-selling the book, you start getting emails from Wikipedia, from Google, Google panels. How can we address you? How do you want, you know, so it's so much different than you spend, you know, go on Google and see what comes up. And then now Google emails you, you know, how do you, well, how do you want your Google panel? What do you want your to be? And it just really changed. People address you a little bit more differently. Like, oh my God, you're an author. You know, your whole life, maybe you were good at writing, but once you go from writer to author, now you really, you know, get a little bit of a different tone with people. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. He's given three TEDx talks and has been featured in various different medias, whether that's PBS NewsHour, US Today, The Washington Post, Time, The Daily Show, Forbes, and so many more. I mean, if you YouTube or Google him, you're going to see something. Throughout his career, he has served as the global head of diversity for major luxury goods and holding companies. But we are here to talk about his first and what I'm sure will not be your last. Maybe we get an exclusive today uh, book, which is called Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. So tell us a little bit about your journey writing the book. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm in diversity, and actually, I wasn't when I started the process, but uh, I was doing marketing, actually had my own uh, company uh, at the time called redcarpets.com, and I was out there, uh, I had created a product line of step and repeat backdrops and red carpets that anyone could buy, and it just so coincidentally, I was doing that for several years, and I get a phone call um, that I was invited to a screening 
of the movie called Red Tails. And I had known the commander of Red Tails was in our family. And this was a screening with the actors, with the directors, with Tuskegee Airmen who were portrayed in the movie. So I go down mm -hmm. um, to the screening and the theater goes black and they're about to start the movie. And um, I'm, I'm sat in the middle of the theater. So all the actors are on one side and then the actual Tuskegee Airmen are on the other. And I kept looking at the actors being like, man, you know, I wish I was an actor and you know, all <laughs> the thing. And the Tuskegee Airmen were 80, 90 years old. So when, when the movie started, I was so on the actor side then the movie gets going, and when the main character and the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen walk out, he was played by actor Terrence Howard, and that character was Benjamin O. Davis Jr., who was the patriarch and center of our family, and then when he gets addressed, his name was Colonel Bullard. And then I started to look around and understand, you know, does anybody know that's not his actual name? Well... Oh. The movie ends and I go to the after party and I start asking people around the after party, you know, is this how it works? You know, Oprah Winfrey was there, Gail, um, T.D. Jake. I mean, there was so many different people there, so many different actors. And, and, you know, everybody kept saying to me, Doug, Doug, this is Hollywood. This is not a documentary. This is an amalgamation of stories. Six or seven people were created uh, put to create a new character. And all night I start spending more time with the Tuskegee Airmen. They didn't know the names were changed when they went to go see the movie. Wow. So then I just started saying, you know, this isn't right. You know, not really knowing how it works. You know, I didn't know how Hollywood works. I don't really know about rights and options and all that. But at the time, I just didn't feel like that was fair. So I go home and tell my dad, and my dad tells me, you know, of course they changed the names, Doug. You know, we're black. Mm. And I just couldn't believe that my dad, who's a judge, would not, you know, talk about it in a way that was a little bit more graceful. He was very just, you know, we're black. And I just kept saying, and he goes, well, let me tell you about the family story. And then he starts sharing with me how he was raised by Ben Davis and his dad and that they were America's first two black generals. And the term that he would use was the invisible generals because they had to live in the middle of nowhere. They couldn't drive at night. They were told, don't be seen, don't be heard. So it was almost like a compromise that they were going to allow them to be the first black officers and generals under the condition that they had to live a life that was fully invisible. Mm. So my dad getting raised in that environment, quiet is kept, doesn't say anything. And he leaves this. And when we wrap up the conversation, he says, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, like, mm -hmm. you know, what, you know, what are you not complaining about it? And then he gives me a speech about the surefire way to end my career is to discuss race. Wow. And he was like, if you want to not be successful and you want to tank your whole career, just talk about race at work. And I left that and I said, you know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to set a Google alert and I'm going to go on my own to learn about these men. And I'm also going to see how I can work with companies to see how they can ensure all the stories are told. And that was when I started my research in 2012. And that's the same year I also became a diversity officer and switched from marketing and entrepreneurship to corporate diversity. So that screening was really a pivotal moment in my career because I just took a left and said, I'm going to follow my heart. Wow. That is amazing, Doug. Just hearing this journey starting from 2012 i can imagine in you doing this research and learning this about your family history i want to know what did you learn about yourself through this whole process well i think the biggest learning is that what we learn in corporate diversity roles we mm. should be applying to our own families and our own stories i think we learn how to tell stories how to uncover different angles 
how to make a strategy, how to be creative, how to tell a story, but we don't use those skills for ourselves. You know, mm. do, you, do you even know what your family did three generations ago? Do you know why you're even living in the city or state where you live in? Do you know really what your mother's grandmother did? Like, I learned my whole family story because, you know, for better or for worse, many people don't talk, especially people of color, trauma. Right. You know, we moved away from it so you don't have to deal with it. We built this so you could do that. So it's really a situation where I learned just basic things about my family, but it made me want to do it more. You know, like mm -hmm. when you find out all the things your family sacrificed for a child that they will never see become an adult, what they saved yeah. so you could have something. We don't know the information. We, we're out here looking at our kids looking at our peers going, what did you log on Instagram? What about this? I got a great story. Can you believe what happened? But ask your grandmother. She'll be like, mm -hmm. baby, we walked 20 miles for water. And you'll be like, what? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, crazy. So I, I learned about that about myself. And I think the other thing I learned was that I could do a project over 10 years and not drop the ball. I mean, because it's a slow, <laughs> come on, man. Yo, God, mm -hmm. it's one small, you know, uh, uh. Uh, you know, it's not fast. It's slow mm. roasted. You know, it's the 14 hour, you know, pork. It's the 24 uh -huh. it's hour. No roasted bar yeah. Like, and we're totally in this instant gratification, but actually that was the slow cooker vibe. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. You know, I think um, as I not only read the book, but see what you're doing right now, hear your story. I do want to let our listeners know that, you are not new to this. And, and, mm -hmm. and I think in the sense of how much you yearn for history, I know you and I had the privilege of, I don't know if it's a privilege or more so an experience of walking through a slave plantation together at one point, you know? Um, but I think that that also allowed me to just see, I think your love for history and legacy and like to learn, but some people don't necessarily have that. Um, and, and or they don't know where to start. So my question to you is, what would you say to individuals that maybe aren't interested in learning the legacy of their family or don't even know where to get started? Because I look at the makeup of the book and the documents and the pictures, and um, it's overwhelming in the best way by how much information you have. But what, what would be your advice to someone that maybe wants to go on a similar journey, not necessarily write a book, but still wants to really yeah. understand the legacy of their family as you have explored? Well, I think the thing is, is that in my case, my history had too much information and you had to have an mm. editor. But I think yeah. it's the same challenge with people that may not have a lot of information and you have to see, search for it. So mine, we had to go through everything and find out what was the most important, what was, so that was like the reverse process and where other people may have to search, but the process is ultimately the same. You know, in the end of the book, I, I actually wrote, walked through every single step I took so you could follow the path of the journey. And I think for me, it just started with one thing every user could do is find out what is your family's generational collateral to you? Did they move to a city so you could be successful? Did they learn a trade that they wanted you to learn? Did they save money in bonds that they wanted you to invest? Did they buy a home and leave it to you so you could have somewhere to live? We don't even know the most basic things that our family sacrificed for us to have. So I think that is step number one. Step number two, make some Google alerts. Mm -hmm. Google family names that you see. Go down the wormhole was this person a soldier? Did they show up in local newspapers? Um, there's a place in New York called the Schomburg Center. And it has um, one of my biggest learnings from this book process is that there were over 500 Black-owned newspaper, magazines, and media outlets up until integration. 500. So integration was in 19, uh, when they integrated the military, uh, that was in the late 40s, and then they integrated everything in the 60s. So up until the 60s, 500 Black-owned, operated, and controlled newspapers, magazines, and media outlets. And now there's like just a small, small handful. 
we don't even know that. I didn't mm -hmm. even know that when the person told me that I thought they meant 50 and they were like, no, Doug, every single city, every single, but even all of us working in media, why don't we know that? Yeah. Why don't we go to the Schomburg center and look at all of them? Because now all of them have been scanned. So during COVID many of the archives and museums and all these black medias outlets didn't have anything online. It was all microfiche, but now it's all scanned. So if you had an uncle or a cousin or someone who did something local, you can now see all the names. So I think it just begins with some basic research and understanding what's in the universe that you could pull from. Wow, yeah. that is just, that is, that is so incredible. It, it reminds me of in 2016, um, I'm Haitian. I don't know if a lot of people know that background about myself, but I am Haitian, born and raised in Miami. And around the time that I graduated university in 2016, I was supposed to start my career in the Peace Corps. And so I was supposed to move to West, West Africa um, and teach business development and be just a volunteer. That same year that I was supposed to go, I visited Haiti for the very first time. And when I went to Haiti, I went with both of my parents and I got to see the home that my father grew up in. And so when I hear you say that about digging into your family history and learning the basics around what they had as children and, and what all of those things meant to them. I had the opportunity to dig into that, you know, with, with my father and his family still lives there. And so this is kind of like, you know, just a homework for me to really tap into that and not to ignore my cousin's phone calls in Haiti. <laughs> like what they like to do is literally call you like every day. Uh, and so that's something that I realized, okay, maybe I should pick up the phone and really like lean into that with them. But that also sparked me in just really evaluating my career journey and what that looked like. So what a lot of people don't know is that Doug and I met because of Ad Color. Mm -hmm. And I was at Color Future in 2022. And so you came in to talk to our class about your process of writing this book. So I can imagine in you doing all the research, going through this emotional journey. I wonder if you went to therapy as well in experiencing that, you know, but going through this emotional journey, this um, intellectual journey as well, and how that formed your career. So can you talk to us about how you built the career that you had while starting this career as an author because this effectively makes you a creator i see that it makes yeah, you a creator yeah. it makes you an entrepreneur it makes you a storyteller so how do people like me kind of balance this career of like having this nine to five but also building out who we are as digital storytellers um and creators so let me let me break down my career in two minutes or less and just give you the quick story arc so um I was an intern in college for the legend Quincy Jones. I uh, was a male cheerleader in college, which was I wanted to play football, but was too small. And they told me I should try out for cheerleading. And I wanted to just uh, I wanted to tackle the coach. I said, what does that mean? You know, I just <laughs> didn't know. I never heard of it. So but the point is, I tried out. I was really good at it. And. The reason I bring that up is because cheerleading is 97% women and 3% men. So mm -hmm. I'm super alpha male now in an environment in 97% women that get, let me understand empathy in different environments. Mm -hmm. I graduate college, couldn't get a job. Quincy Jones office said, take one year off and we'll try to get you something in a year, but you got to find something to do for a year. I apply to get the job driving the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. So I get hired. The Wienermobile is 30 days a hot dog high where they teach you everything about how the Lunchables made, the bologna, the hot dog. They teach you how to fix the car. But the biggest learning that they teach you wait, is- Wait, wait, I'm sorry, wait, hold on, pause, wait. That, that's, that's that's in the Wienermobile? Like there's stuff in there or? No, no. Hot Dog High was 30 days. There's six Wienermobiles, 18 okay. people a year drive it. Okay. But it, 30 days, they fly you to Madison, Wisconsin. Got it. And okay. Go, and you go to Hot Dog High, which is a real thing with the diploma and everything. But the biggest learning is that they give you uh, a coach to teach you how to tell a story, do a news interview pitch the media, come up with an idea because you're paid based on how many media impressions you get for your hot dog. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. So this is so you go out on the road. You're like a you're like a traveling PR team, and whoever does best in Hot Dog High gets the best markets. L.A. first, New York. People who don't do so good, they're in Montana. No shade to Montana or what have you, but then you travel around to different markets, and they track how much media you get. So I do that for a year. I go to all 48 continental United States, and I get to see all the different things in America. Most people haven't state you get to go to all the states so then i become an assistant tour manager for britney spears hit me one more time tour when i get out of that job she had one song out everybody on the tour is 18 i'm the oldest person on the tour that's not in the production i was 22 years old and i start to understand all the entertainment industry how it works uh, the tour sponsor was Tommy Hilfiger Corporation. I befriend him. We all end up knowing each other. And he says, Doug, you know, one of the things that I really like to help people develop is their passion projects. Because a lot of artists yes. want to make clothing lines and all this type of thing. And he goes, you know, maybe you could help me do that with my brother on the side. So Andy Hilfiger is Tommy Hilfiger's brother. He's the guy behind Tommy Jean. So when you kind of see the Aaliyah when you see the Usher or when you see the whole hip hop Tommy connection, that was really through his brother, Andy. So I start working with him to help work with entertainers to create their celebrity passion projects. So perfumes, clothing lines, things of that nature. We end up doing really well for a few years, but that's when they told me, I kept asking, can I please get a job? at Tommy Hilfiger organization and not do the side hustle thing with you guys. And Tommy pulled me aside and goes, Doug, college teaches you to think like an employee. I need you to think like a CEO. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Don't beg to find a way in. Start your own company. Go to the top and work your way down until you're invited in. So don't start at the bottom and fight your way up. Start at the top until you're invited in. And that changed my whole life because that's when I started to think like, oh, I set up a company. Yeah. And I said, well, how much do I charge? And my man says 30000 a month. Now, I'm two years out of school. My friends weren't making $30,000 a year. And I'm like a month. He goes, B2B transaction, corporate consultant. I was like, what? So I start my own company, and then I start advising these entertainers. I get contacted by the legend, Irvin Magic Johnson. He wanted me to head up his marketing company, ultimately moved me to Beverly Hills to head up his business development team. And when I took the, the knowledge I had of working with the entertainers and now working with Magic Johnson, people didn't use the word diversity, but they would call it emerging markets wow and emerging markets were women mm -hmm. lgbt and people of color urban america is what they called it a few years back i know urban has a stigma but this is how they addressed it back yeah. then the importance of it is though is that i started learning the value of those markets and then i go to see the movie red tails and then i switch into working in advertising where i'm working with companies to ensure that their commercial messages were very inclusive. Now, it all came together when we had a woman at our company. We were doing all these happy hours. You know how all these companies like, oh, we're doing a happy hour, happy hour, we do two hour happy hour, one hour happy hour, happy hour with a guest. So we had people come into the company that were saying, hey, you know, alcoholism runs in our family. Can we tone down the happy hour? People in advertising drink a lot. Maybe we could do other things that are happy hour based. So I'm sitting with my CEO and I said, hey, what can we do? And we were saying, what if we fed people knowledge instead of liquor? Mm. And we said, what if we started a talk show in the lobby of our office and invited people in to talk about different angles based on, you know, if it was Women's History Month, bring in someone to talk, things like that, instead of me always being the messenger. And with that, we started a platform called the Disruptor Series, which ended up being 95 episodes it ran. And it was a podcast where we brought in special guests. Well, one of the guests who was coming in to talk about mental health was Charlemagne the God. 
Nice. Wait, what up, year was this? What year was this? Uh, it was the year his book Shook One came out, which was his second uh, book as a follow-up to his New York Times bestselling book. But I, I don't remember the year. I'd like to say okay. 18, maybe 2018, 2017. I'm not sure. Okay, okay. Um, and he comes in, and afterward, he's like, hey, man, you know, we got to keep in touch. You're a young brother, whatever you need, blah, blah, blah. What to... I get a literary agent. She helps me put together the book idea for my family story. And she goes, you know what? I think we should pitch Charlemagne. So when you pitch your book process, you pitch the holding company and then you're assigned a label and imprint underneath. So after the pitch, we get introduced to Charlemagne's team and I pitch him the idea and his publishing arm. So he has a publishing imprint right. under Simon and Schuster called black privilege, which purpose is to uncover and share black stories that have never been told. So he then buys the rights to my book and he becomes my publisher and then I go on the Breakfast Club and the Daily Show and all these other outlets that he's a part of based on the thinking of an entrepreneur in an environment that was more corporate, but also continuing the thought, not stopping just because I hadn't done it before, just because I didn't know. And that has been the moment that changed my life. So it's, it's really all interconnected. And I think the problem when we give advice we tell people hard stops, do this, do that. But that's why I tell you the collateral of the generations in your history. Like when you work for a brand, they tell you to go in the brand closet. Where did it start? What's the story? Who's the founder? We need to do that in our own lives because your biggest opportunity to come tomorrow could be a seed you planted yesterday, but you just aren't looking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I couldn't agree with you anymore. And um, Makisha, I appreciate you asking that question too, because it's almost as if it's a, a full circle moment, Doug. You know, you think about uh, the Invisible Generals and how so much of the book recounts the lives of a father and son who ultimately, you know, they maintain this belief in the American dream. Mm -hmm. And I want to know, do you feel that through you and you know everything that you're establishing today. Do you feel that their belief in the American dream and kind of what they fought for is something that today um, you're uh, experiencing? Well, I, you know, I what what I want to say about, and I think this is uh, there's a moment at the end of the book, and and there's not too much written about it, but just to bring it up with you two because I'm curious to get your two opinions on it. So the book is about a father and a son who b believed in the American dream. So once they kind of work under the presidents, they worked under 13 different presidents of the United yeah. States of America, one family from 1898 to 1998, a hundred years of American history, a father and a son were working with presidents, under presidents, advising them, aligning with them. In 19, early 90s, uh, actually, let me go back to the 70s. So when the term Negro was being used in America, Ben Davis, my family, said we should, fi we've finally gotten past the word Negro. We should go to the term American. Mm. Mm. Jesse Jackson said, we should not go to the term American. We were Negroes. We should be African-American. And most people don't even know this, but Jesse Jackson called all the prominent black figures in America, including Ben Davis, all the newspapers and said, and held a press conference and said, I would like to today universally introduce the term African-American as the go-to term when you address blacks moving forward. And that is how the term African-American was created. It was created by Jesse Jackson. It was bought in by the newspapers and that's how the term was used. Well, Ben Davis believed that if we fought for 270 years to be free and to be Americans, we should never use the term African-American and we should always address ourselves as Americans. 
So maybe people and should not have been up in arms when Raven Simone mentioned she was American. This and is not what I'm saying. And, and in, in Ben's life, when he would go speak, he wouldn't speak at black student unions. I fought mm. my whole life to be American. So I will speak to the student union of Americans, not the segregated community that you've built that I spent my whole life trying to become one unit. So the debate that I always have with people is, do you feel that we have earned the right to just be Americans or should we continue to address ourselves as African Americans? Do you want me well, to ask you know, first? Uh, I do? Oh, okay. No, I want to hear. We never let people turn the mic on, on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing. As Wendy Williams said, give me my mic back. <laughs> but, you know, but, um, <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I do. I think, um, I, you know, I think when I think about, I guess, the, the American dream and everything that people have fought for, Black black culture and black people are so much a part of what built this country. So innately, I think that that's what we're experiencing and that's what we're standing on. But uh, Makisha, I would love to know your thoughts too. Yeah. Ooh, okay. So I think it's complex because of course, my, of course. right. So my history, like being someone that was born and raised in the United States, being someone that is from Miami who is also Haitian, you know, I think it's important for me to continue to lean into my identity as a Haitian. So I identify not as African-American, but as Haitian-American. I feel very proud to be an American, but I think what happens is that we have taken on a bit of this need for belonging from our ancestors and from our people. So my parents came to the United States, came to Miami, and they fought to find a place here and to build their own version of the American dream, right? And so as someone who was, who was already born here, learned English at a young age, I'm able to communicate with different people. I don't have to have the same kind of fight when it comes to belonging because I'm already from here. However, I do believe I am doing a disservice to my history and to my, my, my background by not identifying as Asian American. So I think it's a little challenging because African Americans, you know, there's this conversation of, I don't, even if I wanted to leave America, where do I go back to if I can't even identify with being African? You know what I mean? So I think this is this is a not just a one and done answer, uh, but I yeah. do think you know we all work towards our version of the American dream, and I do think we have claimed our piece of it, and we can't consider ourselves just Americans. It just depends on what identity you you want to lean into. That's my perspective on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give the mic back to you. <laughs> I mean, what for yourself? Like, what what do you consider you? Do you consider yourself African American, Doug, or are you no, American? I, mm -hmm. I like to say American or Black American. I don't really love the term African American. Not. Mm -hmm. It's the same reason. It's just you know certain things hit certain people. I think, you know, I don't really have a connection to Africa. I mean, obviously heritage wise, but I don't think that necessarily is in line with how the word is used. You know, if someone's Italian. Mm -hmm. That was Ben's whole thing was if someone's an Italian American or Greek American, they're just American. If some reporter comes up to him, where are you from? America. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't get into it where there's an expectation that before we say American, if you're black, before you say the word, Africa is put in front of it, which was something that was used to demean us in this land. So, you know, if you look at indentured servants in slavery, it was blacks and whites equally when it started, but then no one could tell with the education level and the language who was free and who was not. So they unilaterally made everyone white free and everyone black was enslaved. And when people would come up from Mexico, they would say, hola. And if the person said hola back, they knew that they weren't black, that they were from Mexico. That's mm -hmm. why a lot of Southern blacks know one or two sentences of Spanish during um, the time of slavery. So if they were ever asked, they could escape as part of the 
uh, Mexican population. I think um, I, I I totally hear what you're saying, and I think I think what is um, what's great about it, especially for our listeners, is that you have also done the research to understand exactly how you want to identify. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times when people are up in arms about the terminologies, whether it's African-American or American, it's because of just what they've heard and not necessarily doing the research to understand mm -hmm. how they want to identify. I think, Makisha, you've done the same thing, you know, so beautifully to where you're like, no, I'm Haitian-American. And I think that for me personally, I can say African-American because it's literally that. My dad is from Ghana which is Africa. And then my mom is from Queens, New York. So yes, I may or may not be Prince Hakeem from coming to America, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but you know, it's quite, it's quite literal. Um, so, you know, switching gears, um, just a little bit. Um, can you, can so you hold on? Can you hold on? I got to get my wire here to charge in before I die. Hold on. Oh yes. We got to do that. Okay. So we will <laughs> edit. Sorry. <laughs> Come on yeah, now, Doug. You knew. And see, and, and why, and why, and why, why you gotta do this on the African American show? Right. <laughs> you ain't got no charger. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. He no, has no. some positions. I gotta I know, switch yeah. it up here. We got one. We got the the plugs are in the wrong spot. No, right. Listen, listen we'll take it. Well, look. I mentioned earlier that, you know, we're so excited to be doing uh, this episode along with 27 other episodes when it comes to um, the podcast in partnership with Ad Color. And so much of that is belonging and community. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, experience um, and relationship with Ad Color and how that got started? Because you walked us through, I think, the early beginnings of your family to college to working with Britney Spears to you working with the agency and the book. But where does Ad Color come in through this uh, journey of yours? Well, Ad Color actually, um, I met Tiffany Warren when I was working for Magic Johnson. And she actually had a meeting with about 15 of us. It was at the AOL Black Voices office in uh, Columbus Circle. And the meeting was actually hosted by a gentleman, Alvin Bowles. He's now at Facebook, but he was at AOL Black Voices. And he was able to secure a room and get some catering. And 15 of us got in a room, and Tiffany said, Listen, I go to the award shows. I see what's out there, and people of color are not getting an opportunity in the ad business to engage in a lot of these award shows. They're not invited. Other people get all the tables and the seats. They're not rewarded because their names aren't getting put on the work. So she said, I want to start an award show for um. the ad industry so people of color can feel like they belong and that they're included. And that was the beginning of ad color. Now it wasn't a conference. It wasn't even, uh, you know, it was a smaller award show. It was partnering with, you know, other, um, industry trade groups. And the show became the most successful event at other industry trade group functions. And then we had another meeting and she, and she created a little board at that time. And it was, you know, 10 or 12 of us or 15 of us. I can't remember. And it was me. It was, you know, Alvin Bowles. It was, you know, I can't remember everybody, but Tiffany was there and she said, you know, we're going to do this. And as we started growing, she goes, I think we could break it off and become our own award show. And then we did the Ad Color Awards. And then she said, I think we could add a conference and get sponsors and do the whole thing because it was really small in the beginning. And then the next thing you knew, it was Ad Color Awards show and conference weekend. And I remember when the first year that we booked the Hilton Hotel where they hold the Golden Globes. And she goes, we got the ballroom for the Golden Globes. And I looked at her and go, Tiffany, you're the greatest to ever do it. Yeah. This was an idea on a napkin. 
in a conference room with 14 volunteers, but I'll just call them people that were willing to, you know, I mean, volunteers, but it wasn't really that organized. And she was able to organize everyone, catalog everyone, align everybody, bop, 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 all the way until we got to the ballroom. And I remember the year that I uh, did the Disruptor series at Ad Color and Snoop was the guest. Snoop Dogg and Ryan Ford from his ad agency uh, were the keynote speakers. And uh, I went out to do the interview and it was the Disruptor series at Ad Color. And I remember we had the stage that the Oscars was using. That was the year we, we had it at uh, Hollywood and the Highland where the Oscars and I sat here and said, let me get this straight. Tiffany Warren. And I'm just because we could all take the credit and we all, you know, it's a whole team and everything. But you watched the last dance because Michael Jordan highlights are in it. You ain't watching it for other people. But I'm saying it took a team, but we know who Michael Jordan was and he's the one getting the ratings, right? Mm. Tiffany Warren. Had the ad color wars on the stage that the Oscars are held, I said, I'm done. This woman is the greatest to ever do it with a day job as a side hustle and got the money, insurance, clearance, hotel rooms, minimums, guests, check in security. It's unbelievable. That's why I love ad color because I saw it from the time it was that small little idea on a napkin that we've all had. Where you write it down, and I'm telling you, that's my connection with Ad Color. So I still sit on the board uh, for the last 16 years, and um, you know, she had that before I was even working in diversity. She's the one who helped me like get involved in diversity. And in fact, when I interviewed at TBWA, she didn't even recommend me because she thought I didn't even want to do it as a full time job. I was too much of a free spirit. And then I got hired, and then she's like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> I didn't even know you were interviewing. And I said, oh, look at this. Because everybody thought she got me the job. Meanwhile, she didn't even know I was interviewing. Wow, that is amazing. Just to see, to hear the history and the growth of Ad Color. Tiffany shared yeah. a bit about, about the, the journey when we were in LA for the conference this past year and also for the Future Summit and hearing how she also started the Futures uh, program as well. Um, it's I'm just, I'm just so inspired by the growth of the people that like I'm elevating with when I think about my whole journey coming into ad color. I want to know for you being a part of ad color for the past 16 years and kind of seeing your growth of becoming an author and looking ahead. What can you say is next for you? Mm -hmm. uh, I think next for me um, and kind of what I'm working on now, although it hasn't really been uh, announced or anything is uh, i I want to really work on more tools for diversity officers and leaders. I don't like how diversity is being framed as like a mom and pop organizational job. Mm. You know, you're the little party planner, you know, go get the thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's become the department of irrelevancy. And the thing is when I started in 2012, it wasn't like that. When I started in 2012, it was emerging markets grow your audience, cultural competency. How can we be more inclusive? You know, it was a totally different vibe. And then as the different layers of diversity uh, unfolded, okay, people started to get more curious about it, get more engaged about it. But then it took a turn. Then it took a turn, guys. And then it became a political woke uh, situation. So if you think about it, right, I started in 2012. It was Oscar so white. That was the first thing that got people engaged. Brands didn't really want anything. They didn't want to be part of it. To uh, April rain. We actually had April on the uh, show. Oh. So go and listen to that episode. Oscar so white. Yeah. Okay. So Oscar so white and, you know, and then it was uh same sex marriage was uh, legalized. Then it was, Oh my gosh, it's, um, Me Too moment. Then it was Stop Asian Hate. Then it was Black Lives Matter. But the thing about it is when it hit the 2016 election, 
then politics got involved in it. And then that was the problem. Mm. Once the politics got involved in it, then COVID hit and it was around empathy. But then the 2020 election came and it became very, very polarizing. It was used as a lightning rod against the other side. It was too political. And the problem that happened in that situation was it really took a hit because saying diversity meant you were a liberal and you had a political belief when that's not how it was when it started. Then October 7th happened this year. And once we started talking about the Gaza Strip, we started talking about the Jewish community. Then it caused a whole nother firestorm that why do DNI departments not support, elevate, and educate around the Jewish community, but they do it for other communities? Then it was, is Palestine right or wrong? Then now you brought religion into it. So now companies, DNI practitioners, professionals, hiring managers, executives are almost circling diversity as a way to get canceled because if you say something wrong or do something wrong but when i look forward i want to help create and build a tool or tools or support systems for dni practitioners for hiring managers that help them through understanding these things because the way it's do done right now is not really practical or scalable mm, yeah that is huge who so how can you or how would you encourage those who currently work for these organizations to use the tool that you're creating? Is this for those who are in those higher per higher positions within the organizations? Or how do we get involved at all levels of the organization to make this tool? Well, effective? Actually, what I want to do is I actually want to make a call to all diversity executives, you know, uh, Justin, I want to take all the transcripts of your your um, podcast, and I want to start aggregating all the DNI data into a centralized brain and then work with that brain so we can all have a center of excellence that we all turn to because none of us really work together. Mm. None of the DNI leaders really work together. It's like, oh, you do what you do. Oh, because you do what you do. I do what I do. Yeah, we share and we get together at conferences, but that's not for real. I'm saying we need to get our assets, our properties, our creations, our positions, our impact papers, and we need to all aggregate it into a tool that helps support us and helps create better solutions for us and allows us to scale what we're doing because the diversity officers are not even equipped. I spent, listen, I spent the last two years living in Europe, working in Switzerland. When I landed in Europe, my CEO says to me, Doug, listen, you've been doing DNI in America and you've traveled around the world. That's great. But this is Europe. This is not America. There's f everyone in Europe knows there's 50 states in America. Let me just ask you a basic question. Do you know how many countries are in Europe? Do you guys know? Oh, I'm saying he asked you. You're going to give us the answer. I'm sure you're about to tell us. I think it's about I am 40. going to tell you. I, yeah, <laughs> it's 40. It's 44. 44. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay 27 okay. countries in the EU. And he said, the, um, it, it was actually, uh, he said to me, and she said, because we had two CEOs actually, what, do you know what the biggest problem is? Language. Not race, language disability every almost every country in europe has quotas we don't do those in america so they said before you even think that you know what you know you know the theory they sent me to 40 countries around the world for one week each to understand the 40 countries that we had businesses in for one week each to understand what does equity mean in Beijing? What does equity mean in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia? What does equity mean in Berlin, Germany? 
And I traveled to these 40 countries and we workshopped. One day I went to the museums. One day I went to the sites. I had a translator. I did workshops with the executive team, with the HR team. I went to the boutiques. I talked to customers. Now I understand what diversity is. But I can tell you when I come back to America... These diversity officers, I'm not throwing no shade. I'm just saying you put global in the title. In America, we use yeah. The, yeah. in America we use the term global. In Europe, they use the term international because people that are global understand general things around the globe. People that are international have gone to the nations to understand what they are. Understood. Mm. Yeah. Understood. Wow. Well, yeah, what we're in the details today. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's giving part two. It's really giving yeah. part two. The, the last thing I want to ask you is what surprised you the most about this, this journey of going to these different countries and just learning about what DEI means to them? What surprised you or stood out the most? What surprised me the most is how little Americans know and how little diversity executives in the United States of America know about diversity. Hmm. Wow. We we are drawing the line at race. We are drawing the line at LGBT. We are spending a lot of time talking about issues and topics that are very wholly and solely American, mm -hmm. which is fine because we're in America. But what I'm saying is when you travel to other countries, yeah, of the 40 countries I went to, race is really talked about in the Netherlands. UK and America. But if you take race off the table, the issues around the world are accessibility, mm, yeah. pay equity for men and women, and um, there's a lot of quotas where things come up where they say you have to have a certain percentage where we don't do that here. But the number one thing is language. The words don't translate. If you talk to someone in the Middle East and say diversity, they don't know what that is. If you go to mm -hmm. Shanghai, they don't know what that word is. So yeah. we're using words that when we talk to international colleagues or people that relocate, they don't even know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to learn how to speak half as fast because I had to always talk to people that use English as a second language. I had to go to training to look at the words they learn in school. So I never used words outside that because they wouldn't understand. Wow. Like, you know, this is level to this. And I just don't think the diversity officers, you know, are really, you know, they talk a lot. They know a lot. But when you go to Asia, they don't say stop Asian hate. I mean, mm. I'm just saying this is basic stuff. But I spent Chinese New Year in China. It's not like America's Chinese here this thing is like whoa yeah but they don't call it lunar new year over there they call it chinese new year but yeah. we call it lunar new year you know like we're just taking things we're almost appropriating diversity and not really respecting the culture and i want to say another thing that's very important we had this topic come up about why we didn't put pronouns on our email addresses I mean, our signatures, right? People wanted pronouns, pronouns, pronouns. But this is my thing. I didn't know because how would we? But if you work in Dubai and you have a pronoun on the bottom of your email and someone forwards it to the government, you're fined and your company's fined. And if the fine happens multiple times, you can lose your business operating license for violating the LGBT laws. So sometimes we'll say, I have an idea. Why don't we auto put pronouns? But if you have a colleague in Dubai and someone forwards that to the authorities, he's going to get fired. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we are looking at it only from a U.S. lens with minimal to zero consideration of the other countries in the world. I bet you people don't even know how many countries are in the world. There is 195. There is 194 countries that work and operate in business that aren't America. 
and we have people saying that they are diversity officers and diversity to me is culture. <laughs> and they have, you know, I met a diversity <laughs> officer once. The guy was global. Guy don't even have a passport. What? So I'm Excuse just saying, me? and I'm not sitting here to name names of them. I'm just saying when we say why is diversity not getting taken seriously, mm-hmm. why are these executives? I'm just saying, are we taking it seriously? Are we yep. traveling? Are we getting education? Are we going around the world? Are we understanding what is diversity in cultures around the world? Or are we just, you know, throwing a party for, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month? No, I mean, you know, Doug, I think uh, what I love about, I think what you're saying and also what you're doing is that it's it's really us getting out there in the world to truly explore these cultures, make sure that mm-hmm. when it comes to the communities, we're traveling to these different places. Now, granted, I do want to note that, you know, sometimes I think that that comes down to equity and how many people can afford that lifestyle as well. But that's not to say that the resources aren't there when it comes to truly understanding, you know, from a, from a global lens, how, uh, how diversity is being approached. So, um, mm-hmm. I appreciate it. I appreciate you bringing that up. And I mean, I even personally feel more motivated to dive in deeper into some of these mm-hmm. other, you know, countries that we may not be thinking about. So maybe it's me or listeners at home getting a map and getting those red pins and, you know, kind of going there. But I think from your book to the work that you do outside of your book, um, it's nice to know that it's at the forefront. For, for the people listening at home, what's the best way that they can stay in contact with you and also, you know, learn more about you. Makisha called it. We got to get you on for a part two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can talk about 40 countries in 40 you know, weeks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying people don't even know, but yeah. you know, basic things like Mexico speaks Spanish because Spain overtook them. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when you say Mexican in Spanish, one's in Europe, one's in North America, it's not even related really mm-hmm. except through language, but we just say it. So I think if we had more cultural understanding and competency, mm-hmm. we could do much yeah. better at our jobs because we may not understand. Go to South Africa. The term colored is used all the time. And there's that singer. I can't remember her name that she's killing it right now. The singer. Oh, uh, uh, she's t- a woman. Uh, t- Tala. Tala. Yeah. Water. Yeah, 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 yeah. She she oh, identifies as she identifies as color. Right? I, I don't. I think know. Tyler, the one that sees make me sweat. Yeah, yeah. Make yeah, me yeah. The, okay, let me see. <laughs> okay, so gotcha, gotcha. So she identifies as colored, mm-hmm. and when she does interviews, you go on YouTube. People are like, but in <laughs> South Africa, color yeah. is yeah. a class of people. Is a real thing. Mm-hmm. But you come here and people are like, all right, that's not really, you know, because our narrative doesn't really go around the globe as much as we think it does. Yeah, I so love that. We all go to dinner together. Find me on LinkedIn. We should do a, a dose of black joy uh, and caffeine at a coffee store. That listen, that is, we that go to one of those Starbucks roasteries. Why don't we yes. call Gianta Jenkins? He's the chief creative officer at Starbucks. And why yeah. don't we have him do what we need to do? I don't well, know. Well, just, you know what? If love you, Jayanta. I'm not making you do nothing, Jayanta. But I'm no, just- definitely. <laughs> and listen, the beautiful thing too is if you're listening to this episode, you have already listened to his episode, which has also which is also airing this season, season eight. So make sure you check out that episode. Uh, we're glad to have him on the podcast as well. But we have to yes. ask. Before you get out of here, Doug, if you could give a dose of anything to our listeners at home, what would you like to give our listeners a dose of? It can't be joy because that's the reason why you're here. You're the joy. And well, we're me and Makisha, we're the caffeine because we keep the energy. But what would you like to give our listeners a dose of? Uh, I just want to give you a dose of inspiration and uh, big ideas can't live in small minds. Uh, don't ask people for advice unless they're ahead of you. They do. They give the best advice they can, but the best advice that they can give you may not be the best advice that you need to get you where you want to go. All right, we'll take that. Okay. Well, 
Listen, this has been an amazing episode. I can't thank you so enough much. for coming off. You all, please make sure that you go out, follow Doug, make sure that you get the book, Invisible Generals. I'm sure that there are so many other things on the move and with the project. Nikisha, thank you for coming on as co-host. I'm excited for the listeners to hear other episodes. As always, stay safe, drink a ton of water, and remember that you deserve a dose of black joy and caffeine. Until next time, I am Madhu.